1: They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
2: I'm April Voki, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. John Gerak is one of the most iconic fishing writers of all time. Having published 20 books and countless articles, it's been said that John may be the only fly fishing writer who's made a decent living at the craft. It's not hard to believe. John's talent for bringing words to life is something only time and dedication can master. In this episode of Anchored, I meet with John for the first time at his home in Colorado. He lets me pick his brain about his upbringing and life as an author, as well as his thoughts on staying passionate about fishing, being a trout bum, climate change, and the use of profanity. If you enjoy listening to Anchored and want to keep it around, you can help by just leaving a review. Just head on over to that little podcast app on your phone, click that five-star button, and let me know what you think. Thank you so much for listening and for all of your support over the last five years. You just can you give me a radio check
0: yeah um how was your drive up you uh, have weather and uh, wind and
2: it was good it
0: didn't was good get lost
2: no no it was hard to get lost
0: i know it's hard it's hard with the gps now
2: it is hard to get lost these days sometimes i wish it was easier to get lost but i
0: know i have the same feeling <laughs> um, i remember i remember maps right I remember driving around with a map spread out next to me and
2: that was not that long ago you know no, it wasn't in my because even no. back in my day, it was like that. Maps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let, look, we'll just start how we start everyone. So, okay, where were you born and raised?
0: Uh, I was born in a town called Glenwood, Illinois, 1946. Uh, lived there until I was oh, six or seven, and my dad worked for Sears. And he got transferred. He worked his way up through Sears. He started unloading trucks after the Second World War, and ended up managing the the biggest kind of store they have, which they call an A store
2: versus a
0: versus a B store versus a catalog outlet.
2: Okay, yeah, because Sears was a big deal.
0: Sears was a big deal. It's Not so sur- much anymore. It's but,
2: surreal. They've gone. Are they even in business anymore? I don't know. I think they've gone out of business. Probably. We grew up with Sears. My mom was all about going yeah. into Sears. And you're right, actually. There were some stores that carried everything.
0: Yeah, it was America's general store.
2: Yeah. And then some You know, were more of like a warehouse kind of. Yeah. You had to order through the catalog. Mm-hmm. And then now there's a little outlet in Smithers, and I think I saw a closing down sign. I think it's done now.
0: Yeah.
2: That's disappointing.
0: It is. It okay, is. So that was but your dad? It was, it was good for him. He did 30 years. But, um, so he would get transferred. So we moved from there to Minnesota, which is great. Mm -hmm. I feel like I grew up, I tell people I'm from Minnesota because that's where I grew up. And, uh, you know, learned to hunt and fish and paddle canoe and... All that stuff.
2: Did you ever pick up the accent, the Minnesota? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay.
0: (laughs) Got it. Sure, you betcha. What about you? I can fall right into it. (laughs) You betcha.
2: (laughs) You know Uh, that as a Canadian, we feel this, I feel a sense of, like, I feel like I can relate to the Minnesotans.
0: Yeah. Yeah. uh, A good friend of mine, Betsy Ekstam, she's a painter. I I met her, she was uh, working as a waitress in this place that's no longer in town. And I went in there one morning. I'd never seen her before. She's absolutely gorgeous, so I noticed. And um, she said, what can I do for you? And I said, <laughs> can I get a cup of coffee? And she said, yeah, you betcha. <laughs> I said, what part of Minnesota are you from?
2: And she was, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> what about your mom? Um, she would have described herself as just a housewife. She was She was just one of those. Yeah, no. Of course, you know, held the family together and through thick and thin and all that stuff. Married dad when he was, uh, just before he went in the the service. I mean, that disrupted everybody's life back then. Uh, They had a daughter, my sister, and war broke out and dad marched down and enlisted.
2: Did he end up going? Yeah. Did he come back different?
0: I don't know because I was born after he came back.
2: Oh, so your sister's older than you are. Yeah. Okay, just one sibling? Yeah. What's the age difference?
0: Quite a bit. Um, Six years, seven years.
2: Okay, so who did you grow up closest with?
0: Um, Closest with? uh, Probably my mother and my grandmother. We lived with my grandmother for a while. And she was sort of the the matriarch above my mother.
2: Of course, as they are. Yeah. Now, what about the fishing side of things? Did your dad... Fish,
0: yeah, Dad fished and hunted
2: before he went away.
0: Oh yeah, always. Okay, always. Because
2: you hear some stories, they come back, and maybe alcoholism is a problem, and fishing has saved a lot of these guys. So you never know. If I never know when someone's gone away to service, I I never know if they've come back and started fishing as a result of what they'd seen, or if they had done it before they'd left.
0: No, no, he grew up hunting and fishing. He was more of a he was more of a hunter than a fisherman. I, I I always felt like he fished. Because there was nothing to shoot at in the summer.
2: Okay. Just something to fill the void. Yeah. Stay connected. And
0: I, I mean, I felt like I could tell just from his level of excitement. He's a Decent fisherman, but it wasn't like his main thing. His main thing was, was guns.
2: Right. So did you get into fishing because of your dad?
0: I suppose so. My dad and my uncle Leonard, who uh, took me fishing a lot. Dad was busy. Dad was building a career. And not that Leonard wasn't busy, but he was just a different kind of guy. He was, you know, he, he was a tenant farmer and worked on the side. And and he was just the guy who could take me fishing.
2: Okay. So, so he did. W- would he be who you related to the most? And from the outdoors, in the outdoors world? Yeah, early on. Sure. Okay. Sure. Okay. And then what about, I mean, obviously you went to school. Yeah. Did you fish throughout school? I didn't. Um...
0: I sort of when we moved from uh, we moved from Minnesota to Ohio, dad got transferred again, and I did my last two uh, years in high school in Ohio, and then went off to college. And I briefly left all that behind. Do you know hunting and fishing? W- I, why? I think because it was the '60s, and there was all this crazy stuff going on. And I went off to college. I studied philosophy and I was going to be an intellectual. And, um,
2: you set out with that in mind? You wanted to be an intellectual? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have said that then, but yeah, then, or, or, but looking back on it, yeah, that, that's what. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I was maybe I'd be a philosopher, maybe I'd be a poet.
2: What do you attribute this to? Is there somebody in particular, was it an experience? Did you want to prove yourself?
0: Yeah, I wanted to prove myself, but I I would attribute it to the 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 first great teacher I had in uh, in high school, Alan Smith, who um, got me into writing. Okay. Well, he didn't get me into writing, but he. I was writing then I was one you know we had a literary magazine in high school and, but he was the guy that just took me aside and said um, uh, you can do this better than you're doing it and yeah. here's how and here's why and um, you know he did a thing it's my favorite example of good teaching he came into class one day and said okay we're gonna we're gonna read English ballads now and everybody went, oh crap no come <laughs> on and he said, okay, I'll tell you what, you do the reading, and you come to class tomorrow, and if you're still not interested in English ballads, we'll skip it. So we came into class, and he had a guitar and a banjo and a record player, and he took English ballads from English ballads to mountain music, through blues to folk music, and ended up at the Rolling Stones. Genius. And we all went, holy crap. <laughs>
2: <laughs> how can we do this forever?
0: Let's read some more English ballads, right. right?
2: Great. Isn't that funny how the people, though, in our lives who instill confidence in us, and usually, I mean, they, they're critical while they're doing it, but it's backhanded criticism. Isn't it incredible how they influence us and inspire us to do better or to pursue yeah. our talents? Yeah. So it was, that was the guy.
0: That was the guy.
2: Okay. So in high school then, did you have an end goal in mind? Did you know you wanted to be an author?
0: No. Again, it was the 60s. Uh, I didn't have it. <laughs> there were no end goals. You know, I just, <laughs> I studied philosophy because I was interested and I had minors in uh, in art and um, English and I just, it was, I would call it now pure education. I just, I wanted to educate myself.
2: But no, not was. not in fishing at this point. This was just
0: you. I I totally didn't. I hunted a little. I had a shotgun and a twenty two and uh, some of the people I was living with at the time just were astonished that I would go out in the fall and come back with a couple of dead rabbits and cook them. And they said, geez, this is good. Yeah, uh, you know, it was just they—they'd never seen anything like that. They thought it was some kind of Native American. <laughs> <or> right. <something. laughs>
2: Actually, we had jackrabbit for dinner last night.
0: Jackrabbit. I think that's what it was. Yeah, never cared for jackrabbit. It was really good. It was. It,
2: it was slow cooked all day.
0: Oh, it would have to be.
2: And then smothered if in not this all, mushroom gravy. If not
0: all week. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: right. No, they did a really great job. I think they've got it. A... Did you ever age your rabbits? Yeah. Yeah. What, well, what, what... I
0: used to jug them. What's that? Uh, you you put them in a marinade. Okay, yeah. And and leave them for a week.
2: They didn't disintegrate and turn into nothing.
0: Well, no, uh, they would have. But I mean, that's that's what a marinade is. Is, is the beginning of them disintegrating,
2: breaking down. The- and
0: you catch them at the right time, and they're real tender.
2: Okay, did you find that you could get them more tender? I'm totally going off on a side note here, but did you find that you could get them more tender by marinating them than aging them, dry, yeah. dry aging?
0: Yeah, because they're, and, and then they're, they're moist and the stuff soaks in and it works from the inside out. Makes and, sense. Yeah.
2: Makes sense. Okay, uh, did you ever get into hunting as much as fishing, considering your dad's passion for it?
0: I Yeah, I, yeah, I hunted a lot, but it, it, was less, it was less a sport for me than food. You know, I was always a subsistence hunter. I never I never shot antlers, I shot does and cows and stuff I wanted to eat.
2: Yeah, I find that seems to be a recurring theme or recurring mindset with people on the show. And it's just so strange to me how fly fishing specifically has gone down such a different path. I don't think it starts like that though. I mean we start I don't know about you, but I started wanting to keep my fish to eat.
0: I started keeping fish, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: All right, Partly well,
0: partly just because I wasn't—I mean, didn't have any money.
1: Right, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I
0: know. you know, you spend thirty dollars for a, a fly ride, you better get some food because yeah. <laughs> that's
2: right. Okay, and I'll, and we'll get back to that, but just back to your timeline here. So you went to college, and you said philosophy. Mm-hmm. You wanted to be—you thought you'd be a teacher? No,
0: yeah. I didn't. I um, no, I didn't, and it became obvious while I was there that it was like that was. It's not like, it, as a philosopher, it isn't like you can hang out your shingle, or you know, you had you really had a couple of choices. You could you could go on to grad school, become a, a teacher, or you could go to law school because law schools love philosophy students because right. they can think, they can reason things through, and that's what you need. And I didn't want to be a lawyer, didn't want to be a college teacher. So after college, I just came out west. And um, just started working. My first job was in a supposedly a silver mine up in Montezuma, Colorado. But it we didn't, we didn't get much silver out of it. Okay. But, then, but that was the job.
2: All right. Were you writing during this time? Yeah. Where do writing and fly fishing merge for you?
0: Um, I think it was. I just realized I was I was writing and trying to be like a serious writer. I'd published some poetry. I have a little book of poetry from the 70s. And I was fly fishing, and there weren't many publications about it then. Uh, no internet. No home computers. Dial telephones.
2: <laughs> you know, <laughs> stuff like that. I hated zeros. <laughs>
0: yeah. And uh, I was reading um, the few magazines that covered fly fishing, and I thought, you know, at that point i have been writing for 10 or 12 years. And I just thought, you know, I know they pay for this stuff and it's not that good. I mean, how hard could this be? So, and at the time I was driving a garbage truck for a living.
2: Oh jeez. So you did you dabbled in vocations then. Oh yeah. You did the mining, garbage trucks or any other strange careers in there that we don't know about?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, neither of those are strange. I mean, they're honorable grunt work that no, you're somebody totally right. has to do.
2: <laughs> you are right. <laughs> any other um, unexpected jobs that you've had?
0: Well, I, I um, cut firewood for uh, a long time. We got a Forest Service permit, and we, they'd pay us to cut beetle kill pine, and then they'd spray it, and then we'd sell it over the winter. So that's the, that's the, the most, it's the best shape I was ever in, because I was in my 20s, and I was cutting trees down all summer and splitting and hauling firewood all fall, and I was just buff.
2: Right. (laughs) Because you're quite tall, too, right?
0: Well, yeah, I was six feet.
2: Yeah, so you have this tall, lean body. Go, John. (laughs) Well, that's fantastic. Okay, so you're looking at other writers, though, and thinking, okay, I could do this? Well,
0: yeah, I mean, in general, but specifically in fly fishing, I just thought, well, it's, you know, nice story, but it isn't war and peace, you know, it isn't big two-hearted river. And so I wrote a story and sent it to Fly Fisherman Magazine and sold it. First one I ever tried. Oh. And it was like it was like a month's rent. Right. You know, I mean I'd would gotten paid a little bit for the poetry book and stuff, but it's it feels it felt like the first time I'd ever been paid to to write.
2: Yeah, that's definitely a pivotal moment.
0: Well, yeah, it is. When you're you're working labor, trying to be a writer, and all of a sudden somebody sends you a three figure check for a piece of writing,
2: mm-hmm.
0: it's like, hey,
2: yeah, I'm here. Could, this
0: could be something.
2: Did you have uh, like was the bar set for you? Were you looking at H- at Roderick haig Brown's work? Was there someone you really looked up to in in writing and fly fishing specifically?
0: Uh, yeah, um, Hemingway for sure. I grew up reading Hemingway. And Tom McGuane, Mm-hmm. he published, the first fishing stuff of his I saw was in uh, a book called, was it Silent Seasons? It was an anthology that uh, Clark City Press put out way back when. How old is he? McGuane? He's yeah. older than I am. He's probably pushing 80.
2: Okay, he, but might, he's not, he
0: might be 80.
2: He's not that much older, though. No. You know what I mean? Like He's not like he was born, he's not Hank Brown,
0: obviously. No, no. Uh-uh.
2: Okay, so did you feel... Did you feel a little bit of I guess what I'm asking is was there a part of you that was like, listen, this is the best of the best. I'm not really inexperienced here or, you know, I can relate to this guy. I can do this. Yeah, oh
0: sure. Yeah, I felt I felt that all along, that I mean, from when I I think the first story that really lit me up was Big Two Hearted River by, by Hemingway. And I must have been fourteen.
2: What was it about it that gave you that feeling?
0: I think it was just the the quiet sort of matter of factness of it. It it really reads I don't know if you've read it recently, but it really reads like an I went fishing story with what's now Antique Tackle. And, you know, he takes a train and they drop him off and he and this is after the the this would have been the first world war. And he hikes to the river and he fishes and catches fish. And uh, it's all pretty, and, and you, know, you, you get the sense of what the tackle was like and he's wading wet because, you know, there's no waders. And, but, but there's a feeling about it that's just kind of inexplicable. And I've probably read that story 20 times. I keep going back to it. And as I get older, I mean, the first time I read it, it was in my early teens. The second time I read it, it was maybe 20. And I go, yeah, yeah. It's like this, uh, th- he doesn't want to go into the swamp because it's symbolic. Because I, I, I'd learned what symbolism was about. So he mm. he, he doesn't like to, he doesn't want to go in the swamp because it's symbolic. And, and it becomes obvious in just the most subtle ways that this guy is really damaged. He never says it never alludes to it, but this guy's home from the war and he's messed up.
2: Do you think you're related to it because of your dad? Maybe.
0: Maybe. I've never been much for self-psychoanalysis. Uh, you know, it's just, it is what it is. You, you You feel what you feel and why. I mean, unless it's really messing up your life, there's no reason to go find out why.
2: I get just, that as a through, writer, you just you
0: use it. You just you. Yeah. You go. Well, this is material.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I. But I did always wonder that about you. If if you did look at you know deep within yourself often and.
0: Well, yeah, but not not to find out why I'm the way I am so much as just to find out where the, where does the story go.
2: So where does this story go, though, with you? When did you write your first book, and how did that all happen?
0: first book was um, Fly Fishing the High Country. It was in the late 70s, early 80s. And uh, it was just, at the time, I mean, people do it all the time now, but nobody was hiking into these little streams and beaver ponds and mountain lakes and fly fishing. And I didn't realize at the time that I should keep that to myself. Uh, you know it didn't occur to me i can't go where i used to go because it's too crowded now and the first time i complained about it a friend of mine said well you wrote the goddamn book (laughs) and i went oh yeah it hurts (laughs) so that was a that was a learning experience and then um i've been writing essays and getting some of them published and uh, i went to the same publisher and said do you want a book of essays and he said well let's look at it and and he took it, and that was Trout Bum. Right. And um, Trout Bum did well enough, didn't you know? It was never like a a huge seller, but really? it just yeah, really. But it it's
2: was, legendary now.
0: Yeah, well, that's what they say. Um, it was it was a slow kind of word of mouth thing. I mean, nobody knew what to make of it at first. Because it was, nobody had ever allowed that in fly fishing writing, no one had ever allowed that there was a counterculture, that there were actually, I mean, the whole thing was was Eastern and vaguely British and Tweedy. And out West, there are these guys fishing that, I mean, you'd swear they were raised by wolves and nobody talked about that.
2: Hallelujah. Yes. Yeah. My people. <laughs> Our
0: people, exactly. And... um uh, I think I was probably the first person to write about that in fly fishing. Right. Plenty of people were writing about it. Tom Wolfe was writing uh, the electric Kool-Aid acid test and all. I mean, you know, people were addressing it, but not in fly fishing. And the old guard sort of turned their nose up at it. And all the, the young fishermen went. This is our guy.
2: Yeah. How did the old guard perceive you? Did they end up welcoming you in? I mean, I know they eventually, do now. But. <laughs> eventually, yes. <laughs> but, so were you kind of the rebellious young guy on the scene? Yeah. Interesting.
0: Yeah. And now I'm the old guy that the young guys come to for advice.
2: But do you think that you share the same perspective as the old guard? Do you look at the young people now and go, tsk, 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 tsk?
0: Who do oh, you yeah, think Oh yeah, some, In some ways. In some ways I do. Yeah. Um, it's inevitable. I think, but no, not quite in the same way. I mean, because, you know, there was a thing in, um, the New York times recently about the
2: birdwatching one.
0: Well, this was about the millennials discovering. Yeah. They, they'd, they'd yeah. been into bird watching and now they moved on to fly fishing as if it was a brand new continent they've just discovered. And it's, and it happens to be populated by inconvenient natives that they will move out eventually. And, um, and my first thought is, yeah, a bunch of young whippersnappers. And then I thought, well, that's exactly what I did.
2: You're opening a can here. You
0: know, I came into this <laughs> this stuffy English sport as a as a pot smoking hippie, and and. Uh,
2: but why? What was your What was your reason for coming into this sport? And this is what it's always going to come down to intention for me when this subject comes up. Yeah. What were your intentions?
0: I think. I mean, it's, it's been a while, so it's hard to remember, but I think I just liked it. I think I just liked the, I remember coming, I'd never seen fly fishing before I came West after college. I knew what it was in a vague sort of way, but, and maybe I'd seen one or two guys fly fishing for smallmouth bass in the Midwest. I'm not sure, but. I just saw it and I thought that is the prettiest damn thing I've ever seen. And then I saw a trout and I thought, well, that's the prettiest damn thing I've ever seen. And and I just I wanted to do it. And it actually never occurred to me to write about it for the longest time.
2: Exactly. Now that you just made my any, if I were trying to make a point, you just made it. You came into it with passion first. Yeah. And yeah. the rest came after. Imagine if what you had done instead was seen an opportunity where there was nobody else making a living in fly fishing writing, and you wanted to make a name for yourself. Imagine if you went at it from that angle first, and the passion came later, or maybe never came at all. Can you see how that would be seen as fraudulent?
0: Oh, yeah. I see that more in the business than in writing.
2: I'm talking in the fly fishing industry right now. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you see it.
0: I do see it, but I don't think it's anything new.
2: Interesting. Back then, what was it like? Did that happen?
0: Well, there was, you know, the guys that owned the fly shops, they were businessmen and had to be.
2: Do you um, think that they that the majority of them got into fishing and were passionate about it first? Or did they just see, an, like we were talking about, seeing an opportunity and come on in to make some money?
0: Well, I think, they, I think most of them fly fished. Because that's how they knew about it. I, at the time, I mean, fly fishing, fly fishing, fashionable now, but at the, in the 70s, it was a sporting backwater. Nobody fly fished. Old guys fly fished, and a few young guys fly fished. And um, most people were spin fishermen if they fished at all. So, I mean, it was not, it wasn't that much of an opportunity then, like it is now. Like, you can get into it. And say, okay, I'm going to make some money, and then I'm going to start buying up companies, and I'm going to become a, I'm going to become a corporate giant in the industry. There was, there was no industry to speak of.
2: Do you know how, what the industry is worth right now, or how much money was made last year? No, one point six billion dollars. Billion. Billion. Well, did you ever think you'd hear that?
0: No, but I never cared one way or another. It's, I mean, it's <laughs> nice that, you know, it's just that the. Um, iftd show in, in denver for a day and um i you know i don't enjoy those things that much I, I i know a lot of people i enjoy talking to them and i still enjoy when when somebody i don't know comes up and says i've read your books you know grew up reading your books i love it I, I i enjoy the hell out of that and don't let any writer ever tell you they don't because they're lying <laughs> the industry, I only, it always strikes me that I'm glad the industry's there. I patronize it a lot, but I don't need to hear about it. You know, I don't need to hear about your bottom line. I don't need to hear about your corporate structure. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. You're happy,
1: <laughs> but just,
0: you know, sell me a fly rod, and I, and I'm going to leave. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it.
2: selfishly as an author is there a part of you that is delighted to hear that the industry is growing because it means maybe more fly fishermen are going to read your book which means more sales or is there an equal part of you that's like ah that means more people on the water
0: well both both Um, yeah I'm happy to sell books to anybody that wants one and the water's getting crowded so yeah
2: (laughs) how many books have you written now 20. What was your favorite one to write?
0: You know, I, it sounds it sounds like a, a setup, but I, I'm always happiest with the last one.
2: Okay. What was it? I got? I've got the last one. I think I've, I'm halfway uh, you, through it. You
0: don't, because the last one isn't published yet.
2: I was given one two years uh, ago. Fly
0: Rider of Your Own. Is that the one you have?
2: Maybe. Your agent sent it out. Or your publisher, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. And I started it. It's beside my bed. Oh yeah, that's it. Oh, it is flyer out of your own. Yeah. Yeah, no, that is it. But it's a soft cover and the colors are different. I don't think it had gone to print yet.
0: Yeah. You had to bound galleys.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's excellent. Um, what I did get through and then I ended up having a baby and I just haven't been reading as much as I used to, but <laughs> I, yeah, okay. I understand. that. So, right. <laughs> so this, that, so that was your, a flyer out of your own was your last book. Yeah. What's the one that's coming out
0: it's called "Dumb Luck" and the Kindness of Strangers, and it comes out in April.
2: And this was your—that's your favorite book so far. Mm-hmm. Oh, this—you you, know—now that we all have to read this, that you have said that. <laughs> Very smart. <laughs> You're a smart man. So tell me about what, what is what's it about? Well,
0: they're—you know—they're all kind of installments of the same big book. You know, my editor Bob and I were joking one time about. Because we discuss the titles. Sometimes they just take my title and sometimes they say, no, can't say that. <laughs> and at one point, Bob suggested, well, why don't we call the next one, Let's Talk More About Me, Volume 17. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Is that what it's about?
0: Well, it's about fishing and traveling and what what's going on and what I think about what's going on. And, you know, it's... As as one reviewer once said, it's the same old stuff from Girong. I just keep trying to make it better and go different places. And you know, everybody everybody gets in a groove. I think it was Jim Harrison said, "It's it's great to get in a groove. Don't let it be a rut, right? Right? Don't let it get so deep you can't see out of it."
2: Do you think in this latest book though that's coming out in April? Do you think that you have a different perspective in it? Oh, always. So you're constantly always evolving, because obviously. I'm,
0: yeah, yeah, because things are happening and... Uh, gosh, you know, people are dying and, you know, old friends and relatives are dying off and I'm getting older and the world's changing and, sure, there's always a new perspective.
2: Do politics show up in this latest book?
0: Um, no, not specifically.
2: Is that a decision, like a conscious decision?
0: Well, kind of, because... Uh, when you write about politics, and I and I do occasionally write about politics for the, the local paper in my column, but boy, it's obsolete in days. Any more hours. And so I don't want to write a book that's got a political edge to it more than, I mean, I think anybody who's read any of my books would go, yeah, this guy's a lefty.
2: Yeah. So the first book I read of yours was "Sex, Death, and Fly Fishing." Mm-hmm. Grant, I will give you credit. Your title got my attention, and I mean, it was clear. I could tell where your head was at. You didn't even have to say anything. I could just. I felt like you painted your character. I could read between the lines. Let's mm-hmm. just put it that way.
0: Yeah. 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 Nobody. I don't think any of my readers would be surprised that I did not vote for Donald Trump. <laughs>
2: So speaking of making conscious decisions, this is something I've always wanted to ask you. Do you ever feel like you have to continue writing about fly fishing?
0: Uh-huh. Yes, I do. I do feel that. Um because you know it become a commodity. Right? I mean it's what my it's what my readers expect, it's what my publisher expects. If I went with to my publisher right now with a, a, a dark existential novel, he would say, we, we, we got to talk. We got to sit down <laughs> and talk. Are you okay?
2: What about writing as a ghostwriter? are um, just saying that this is what I have to say.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I would never, I don't think I'd ghostwrite a book because I have too, too fully functioning an ego. If I wrote a book, I'd by God want to take credit for it or blame or whatever it turned out to be. (laughs) Sure. Uh, A friend of mine, an editor, uh, who's written about fishing uh, for years and years and published a few books, he retired and wrote a historical novel. And it's good. I've read it. It isn't published. And he just said, well, try try being a new novelist in your 70s. Yeah. You see where that gets you. I mean nobody wants to hear it. Mm. They don't want that many new novelists as is, and if they do, they want one in their thirties.
2: Oh, that's surprising to me. Is it? Yeah, because I would I obviously I have a thing with stories. I love hearing stories. That's why I have the podcast. Mm-hmm. And I actually paint myself in a corner because I as a podcaster I fall into the same trap. People want the young's voice, the enthusiastic voice. Yeah. Uh, and when I say people, I don't mean my listener. My listener is amazing. I mean companies they want whoever has the biggest you know instagram following whoever can promote it and get numbers Mm -hmm. and i have maybe i've shot my i know actually for a fact i've shot myself in the foot because i could bring my numbers of this podcast up if i were to fall into that trap but i just am so passionate about the older the older generation and the stories that they have because they are so experienced and they have so Mm -hmm. they've struggled with so many so many things within themselves yeah and I feel like my listener feels the same way that we, and I hear them say, we like the older people's stories. So who's making the decision that they want 30 year old authors? Because well, everyone I've spoken to, it's the
0: opposite. Cor- corporate guys. Yeah. And they're, and they're looking at, they're looking at charts and graphs. They're not looking at human beings. We had a guy at, there was a guy at Simon and Schuster. I think obviously he's gone now, but, um, he handed down an edict from some corner office that, well, he, he read a study that said more people look up books by subject than by title. And so he dec- decreed that all of Simon & Schuster's nonfiction books had to have their subjects in the title.
2: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So and, this is going right back to SEO and search engines. And, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it's definitely not new.
0: Oh, no, no, no. No, I mean, you know, advertisers and sponsors have always done that.
2: Yeah. So what are you going to do, though? Do you you ever feel like you've painted yourself into a corner?
0: Well, sometimes I feel like I've painted myself into a corner, and sometimes I feel like I've carved myself out a nice, roomy, comfortable niche.
2: (laughs) Right. Glass half full, I like it. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, mean, what's a corner?
2: But does it work? Is it work? Is it work? And and let me even, I'll, I'll just, I want you to understand where my head's at. I often wonder if it's being, and this is not a criticism, it's just the things that my crazy mind thinks about. Mm-hmm. Is it setting a realistic expectation? Because I know for me, I mean, I'm only 37. Well, not yet. I'm almost 37. And I've not lost the passion, but I'm not as passionate as I used to be. And then I'll read a story like yours or even Hank Brown's and I'll be like, oh, they're you know 70 and 80 and... They are still so passionate, I must not have it. Or maybe something's wrong with me because I'm not as passionate as they are.
0: Yeah, but passion isn't something that, that you know, hits a fever pitch and stays that way for a lifetime, is it? No. I mean, it comes and goes. Um, you know, it's October. I've had a busy fishing season. I'm not as young as I used to be. I'm a little tired. I'm perfectly happy now. To not go fishing. I've got a guy after me to go float the Colorado River with him, and I'm thinking, yeah, I could not go out in the wind and the cold. I could sit here, build a fire, and write a story.
2: Yeah. I mean, the passion's you know? still there. It's just...
0: It's definitely... So, I'm climbing the walls by spring. Right. And I'll be pissed off because my book comes out in the spring, and, and they're going to want me to go do a book tour, and I'm going to say, okay, but the fishing is good. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> so, But it comes and goes. And, you know, every once in a while, someone will introduce me as a professional fisherman. Well, I'm not, right? Nobody pays me to fish. They pay me to write. And so I love fishing. Every once in a while, I get a little tired of it. So I sit down at the desk and now I'm a writer and I'm energized again because I love writing. Right. And I'll spend the winter writing until I'm tired of it. And then it's spring. And the blue winged olives are hatching. Right. And I haven't fished in a couple of months. And so I'm back. So you're
2: constantly ricocheting between the two. Yeah. That's a good combination. Mm -hmm. That is a good combination. Yeah. If you could write about anything and it would sell, what would it be? Not fly fishing. God, i never thought about it <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to write about do you ever sit down and think to yourself, I, want to write, I really want, I want to write about this
0: i want to do exactly what i'm doing and it's taken me a lifetime to get there but i want to do exactly what i'm doing exactly the way i want to do it i'm just trying to i'm just trying to maintain that you know
2: that's it's, excellent to hear. it's not
0: like i want to write a mystery novel it's Oh, not you don't like what, I don't. I love to read him. I love James Lee Burke. You ever read him?
2: No, Burke with an E on the end? Yeah. seen the name, but no, I have not.
0: Oh, he's wonderful. The first, when I picked up his series, uh, he's got a detective in Louisiana named Dave Robichaud. And when I first pick him up, he's um, he's a disgraced ex-detective running a bait shop with a uh, three-legged raccoon named tripod.
2: Okay. <laughs> and when
0: and when he gets stuck on a case, he rows out on the bayou and catches bluegills to clear his mind. Okay. And I thought I can relate to this guy. <laughs>
2: right. I'll have to check him out. There's so there are so many writers to sift through these days. Hey, speaking of which, do you have a hard time with this whole online ebook thing? Is that something that's I'm assuming your books are available through ebook? Mhm. Does Most that of them. I know it cuts significantly into royalty check is that something you've had to battle with and i'm asking total i'm asking selfishly right now
0: yeah um well it you know it's kind of like i i make as much on an ebook as i do on a paperback oh you do yeah because at least through simon and schuster because when we first did that the royalty was was pitiful but it was um nobody understood it nobody understood what the market was going to be like and it's like my agent at the time said um They just the only reason they're doing eBooks is they don't want to be the last publisher in New York with monks in the basement hand copying manuscripts, right? (laughs) I mean, it's it's a thing they want to get into it. But their deal, the contract said, if we if we reach a certain level of sales, your royalty doubles. Oh, so I make a a much larger royalty on an eBook than I do on a on a hardback.
2: That's
1: incredible. But it's a
0: smaller amount, so it but you know, it's significant.
2: Yeah. Oh good, I'm happy I asked. I had no idea. Uh, I have another selfish question for you yeah. that I've always wondered about. Profanity as an author, profanity as an intellectual. Yeah. As a seventy some odd year old man. What are your thoughts on profanity?
0: Well, um I use it all the time in conversation. I mean to where I have to you know, there's a few make an effort. A, a few classic words I go to instinctively. And so in a a situation like this, I have to just, there's a little, there's like a little post-it note in my brain that says, this is for broadcast. You know, people will hear this. So
2: it's interesting because I've read a bunch of studies. I swear like a trucker, but Mm -hmm. I feel like for the most part, they belong where they're put. I don't make a conscious effort, but mm-hmm. it, they just it's like I use a conjunction without thinking, and it's the same thing with certain words. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've read a bunch of studies on why intelligent people use profanity, and it's actually quite fascinating. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts.
0: Well, I I think it's because it's easy. And because it's, um, it's um, well, it's nowhere near as shocking as it used to be. It used to be more fun in the 60s. Sure.
1: <laughs> when
0: people worried about it more. Uh, now you hear it on TV and everything, but I think it's I think it's easy emphasis. But as a writer, I don't use it. I use it when it's appropriate.
2: Right. So when is it appropriate as a writer? Are there ever situations uh, when there are simply no other words that can convey the message? Other than there is words? Th-
0: there are occasional situations where no other word will quite work as well, and then there are direct quotes which have to be rendered. Accurately, and other weird. Uh, I was in, uh, I was in Alaska on the Aniak River, and there's a guy. They have a tent camp way up river, where people go like two two days a week. The whole camp moves up for two days a week. Well, all the rest of the time, there's this guy up there named Mike, and he's an older guy. He's about my age. And he just stays up there by himself with his two dogs. And the guides, the young guides call him Uncle Fucker. Okay. Why? Because he's grumpy.
2: Okay, he's a fucker. Yeah, yeah.
0: he is. So how can you not use that? Yeah. Right? The trick is not to overuse it.
2: <laughs> right, yeah, it's a balancing act.
0: Yeah. But there there are, um, I mean, I can't think of a specific situation right now, but there are just times when it's the only The only word.
2: Do you ever find yourself, are you into etymology?
0: Uh, I'm interested in it. I don't know much about it, but yeah.
2: It's really interesting. And I also don't know much about it. But when I do get onto certain words, I'm I'm quite intrigued by it. And the origin of a lot of swear words is quite practical and not offensive. Mm Mm-hmm. So you can look at it that way as well.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: And just how times change. I mean, I wrote a whole whole article on the word huntress. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, we and I spoke to a, a, a professor of etymology and just talking about how a lot of these words evolve into meaning something that was never meant to, they just take on a different meaning over time. Oh, yeah. And I yeah. feel like there are certain words and I mean, even the C word, we won't go down there today, living in Australia, I mean, the C word is used often, mm-hmm. uh, but even the, the, where that came to be, I think it was, it meant, an, it was another word for vagina
1: mm-hmm.
2: and it wasn't uh, offensive at all. And now, if you say that word, I mean, it's like the worst one in America, right?
0: Pretty much, yeah.
2: Now, you said something interesting in your interview with Meat Eater. You had said that you read a lot of, the, of Chatham. hmm And it's really interesting. I had him on the show and uh, it was one of my One of my coolest interviews, for me anyway, he and I were in my truck, or in someone's, no, some random person's truck. And we had, like I was telling you earlier, that little plug-in mic. Right. And he was in his sweatpants, and he was just totally real about his struggles and how he lost everything. Yeah. And, you know, now, thankfully, he's getting back on, but he was really down and out. Did you ever have one of those situations where you were properly down and out?
0: Yeah. Yeah, several. Um none of them i mean they're not very dramatic stories but it just you know no money i kept i kept trying to quit my job and be a writer and i'd get a couple of months into it and oh crap no money you know so i'd have to go get a job and work for a while and then i'd quit again and,
2: but that would make you more appreciative now for this
0: oh yeah for your job
2: yeah so when did you meet susan then
0: we met, um, we were just talking about it earlier, she thinks in the 90s, I think it was earlier than that, I think it was in the 80s. I was the outdoor columnist for a daily newspaper here, and she was the business editor. And we used to, that was in the old days, I would type my copy, I would shoot a roll of film, and I'd go in and deliver that. And uh, we started flirting, as people do. And uh, that went where it sometimes goes, and we ended up being an office romance, and I quit the paper, she quit the paper eventually, but well, I mean, by, by that time we were living together. Just one of those things that happened, thank God, you know, it's yeah. been great.
2: and it's been a long time, and then you guys don't have kids, do you feel that one of the reasons why you have been able to focus on your writing and become such a fantastic writer is because you made that decision to, um, oh, yeah. to stay down this on this path?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, kids. I've seen kids really, really get in the way. I have a friend of mine who's a really good documentary filmmaker finally had to just go and start making commercials so he could feed his wife and kids. And, and God bless him. I mean, that's that's honorable work. That's what you do. And maybe, you know, he's young enough, maybe someday he can come back and do documentaries, serious documentaries again. But no, it's, it's it's um, you know, unless you're Pablo Picasso and just a dick about it and, <laughs> and have kids all over the place and not take care of them. But I mean, if you're if you're an honorable person and you take care of your kids, it's it's a terrible imposition on on your life as a writer. I mean, that's that's a big part of uh, uh, what me and Susan are about. It's like she's from an old fishing family in Michigan. I mean, like her grand or great grandfather came over from Norway, built a boat, fished commercially. The whole family fishes. We went back for her mother's funeral. We fished that morning to get lake trout for the reception after the funeral. Oh. And she's a writer. So it's like the two big things I don't have to explain.
2: Right. Makes a big difference. (laughs) It (laughs) really does. Yeah. That's just interesting. I do, I think, a lot. And I I managed to do all right with one. I couldn't handle two kids. There's no way. Mm -hmm. Um, But I find that the one thing that does suffer the most is my writing. My outdoor time doesn't. She comes with me everywhere. But the writing, the problem is I can't, I need to shut down and let my muse come to me. And every time the muse shows up, so does my daughter. <laughs> the right. two of them don't seem to get along. Yeah. And I can't get back in the headspace. And then by the time I can, it's like 10 p.m. And I do work till about three. Mm-hmm. But you know what it's like at that point. You're, yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. typing words over. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's See,
0: I'm a, I'm a morning writer. So I don't, Susan does that. I, you know, Susan will be up to them. Midnight, one o'clock writing, but I'm, I'm a morning guy.
2: Right. How many hours a day do you write?
0: Oh, you know, as long as it's as long as it's going well, which is usually three four hours.
2: So, what's the future plan for you then, John? Are you just going to keep writing? I'm just going
0: to I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing until I get to the point where I can't do it anymore, which is inevitable. Um, to either not be able to write or not be able to fish and travel. And then I'll figure it out from there, I guess.
2: You actually seem really balanced. Do you feel really balanced? Yeah,
0: finally. I mean, it took, it's taken me seven years, but yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's funny, you know, this is one of the reasons I like to do these in person because I can look people in the eye Mm -hmm. and you'd be amazed how many times you can look someone in the eye in their 70s, and they're sad, uh-huh. they look sad, or something's not, you know, something's missing. But I don't feel that about you at all. Like, I really feel like you feel balanced. Am I reading this right?
0: I think so. I think so. Um, not that I'm not sad about plenty of things from, you know, my friend's troubles to politics, but, yeah, I mean, yeah, I feel, I don't know if that's the word I'd use, but, yeah, balanced.
2: Okay. Okay. What would you like to see my generation do?
0: Deal with climate change, plain and simple. Just figure it out, figure it out. I mean, you know, we, my generation had a big hand in making it as bad as it is. And we don't seem to know how to fix it.
2: I don't know if my generation does either yet.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways it's, it's, it's not a mystery how to fix it, but it has to be done.
2: How do we fix it?
0: well we have to stop using all the fossil fuel we're using i mean we have to stop stop it getting worse you can't reverse it i mean people there's people who talk about climate engineering and stuff but that's that's science fiction i think and it's dangerous cuz what if it goes wrong but yeah i mean it just basically comes down to we know we know how we got here and we have to try and stop doing that into the future and and you know solar and wind power Electric cars. And, you know, I say this with a gas guzzler in the driveway. Well, it's not a guzzler, but it's a gas car in the driveway. And I live in the country, so I have to drive to get anywhere. And so, I mean, somebody's going to have to figure it out. And I try to do, you know, I try not to waste trips. And I, but, you know, I mentioned Alaska earlier. That's like, you know, my pickup truck to the airport, a shuttle bus, two airplanes. And a John boat with a 40-horse motor and a gas tank the size of a steamer trunk. And I'm in the wilderness. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Talking to Uncle Fucker about climate change.
2: <laughs> yeah, fair enough.
0: I I have to. I'm I'm still wrestling with that. I mean, but I have. It's how I make my living as well.
2: Mm, I know. So right. I, I mean, I know you incorporate some of this in your writing, but have you ever thought about really putting it in people's faces, or do you deliberately avoid it because you don't want to offend anybody?
0: Well, I what I do is I is I slip it in to books and and uh, says just to put it there because people don't i don't respond well to being preached at and most people don't but if you just if you just slip in use it by the way you know we're changing our own climate and it's really going to get bad if we don't do something about it and we're we're talking about fly fishing here i mean we're the a, a sport that depends on a healthy environment healthy functioning environment we're screwing it up
2: do you think you're reaching the ears of young people
0: i don't know do you care Oh yeah, I suppose I do. Um you know, you don't have any you don't have any real control over who you're reaching as a as a writer. When I go out and do book tours or like I go to one of the shows and people come up to me and they're kinda all over the map. There's a lot of middle aged folks, a lot of older folks, and a lot of younger folks, a lot of people in their thirties. And I don't it's not like I keep track of how many of which I talk to, but it just seems like, I think it's the same people who who read in general. Yeah. There's a, there's a kind of person who likes to read, and there's a kind of person who doesn't like to read.
2: Do you find that that number is increasing, the people who don't like to read?
0: I don't know. I mean, I don't get a sense of it. But, um, yeah, I mean, you read articles and stories about more and more people want to Want it all on their screens. They don't want to have books, but they're still reading. And
2: they want sound bites. and yeah, bullet notes.
0: Yeah, yeah. I have noticed a lot of the magazines want shorter and shorter stories, but I don't know if that's because of the the their perception of the attention span of the reader, or because they want more room for ads. You know, I mean, this is all. I just see the stuff. Like, I don't have any inside dope on any of this.
2: Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: I just see what everyone else sees and make a guess.
2: Well, I think we're. Just so lucky to have you. And I don't I don't know if you know the influence that you have. Do you deep down? Deep down, do you know the influence you have?
0: Yeah. I, you don't get inklings about it. I'm lucky because my friends are like happy I've found regular work, but they're otherwise unimpressed.
2: Right. You know with, what I mean? With the fact that you're promoting fly fishing or places? Well, with the
0: fact that I'm a, I'm a writer who makes a living selling books. They're... Well, it's nice for you.
2: Like, are they jealous? You mean?
0: No, they just they know me as a fisherman and a friend, and so I mean, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it day to day, right? I don't have. I'm not. I'm not like. I don't know somebody who's really famous, like a Brad Pitt, has probably got people around him who are just sucking up because they want to. They want something from him. Oh, just
2: surrounded in affirmation.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't have that. So, on
2: purpose, though, a little bit like, do you think you're accessible to affirmation? It's not like you're a social no,
0: media. I, I, per- yeah, I said earlier, when somebody comes up to me, everybody should experience this. When you go to some place, you go to a show, fly fishing show, and 15 people come up and say, I love your work, you're great. Right. Everyone should experience that. It For just sure. feels great.
2: But there's not, is there a johngearock.com?
0: There is, it's,
2: but it can they it, reach you through it? No, no, exactly. So you, even if you were, I mean, your email address is awesome. I love it. It threw me just because it's not at, you know, john at com, And so I, I often wonder if, if people would love to tell you more, just what you've done for them, but they don't know how to, they don't know how to tell you.
0: I get letters through uh, magazines and the magazines I write for and my publisher. Um, no, I don't. I mean, I am a little reclusive, but I, it's not like I don't want to hear from people. It's just I don't want to be out there all the time. Yeah, I get it. Um, uh, courting but- it, you know. I mean, anybody who wants to reach me, they can write a letter and send it to the publisher, or or you know, Trout Magazine, where I'm a columnist. Or,
2: so it makes it. And I'll, to you.
0: I'll get it. I may not. I try to. I try to answer. The mail I get every once in a while, I get one that's so puzzling and creepy, I just don't know what to say, so I don't.
2: (laughs) What's an example of creepy? Oh, just... I had a man once send me pictures of... Black and white pictures of himself in a bathtub with a scotch in hand. He couldn't see anything, but it was yeah. this long, creepy, very well written article of how he was so inspired. But then he had to include pictures of himself in a bathtub. Mm-hmm. That's my that's my creepy one. What's yours? What's no, the I don't one
0: get any, I don't get anything like that. Thank God.
2: What would creepy be for you? Oh, creepy is
0: just um, you know I've 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 read all your books and I and I feel like we really have a connection and I want to come out there and go fishing with you. Uh, okay, and it's like no,
2: <laughs> no, full stop. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: and then maybe the guy is maybe he's a perfectly nice guy. I don't know, but you know, people want to like they want something from you, and they they have some expectation, and it's gonna no, no. You know, you you buy a book, that's what you get. Yeah, enjoy the book. Enjoy the book. But you right? don't
2: get to enjoy me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, there are so many, we could take this conversation down so many paths because you are, you have done so much and and you did a great job, you know, Renella, podcasted you and you guys spoke about some of your books and mm-hmm. your writing style and I can't even pretend to, um, I'm not as knowledgeable of a writer as Steve is, so I'm not even going to go down that route. But is there anything about your career or your timeline that you think that I've missed that you wanted to bring up or acknowledge?
0: No, I don't think so. I think you covered it.
2: (laughs) Um, John, is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me?
0: Nope. I'm I'm fine. (laughs) I'm good.
2: (laughs) I know. (laughs) Thank you very much for coming on to the show. Happy to do it. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.